Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all of the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and two of his sons, Zebedee, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned and he found the disciples sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for just one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may, you, may your will be done. When he came back <clears throat> again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, You are still sleeping and resting. Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of the sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. dog is a man's best friend. It's a timeless saying because it has a ring of truth to it. Now, of course, not all dogs are friendly by nature. Some have a nasty streak that don't make them great companions. But on the whole, if you're good to a dog, it'll be good to you. and It'll stick to you like glue. Of course, not all humans are good to dogs. Some humans are not friendly by nature. Some have a nasty streak that don't make them great companions. And so there are dogs that are abused. Dogs that were ready to be a friendly companion, but who now fear humans. They struggle to trust that there could be different kinds of humans who would be kind to them. Now, there are different kinds of humans who can be good dog owners. It's really not that high of a bar to cross. The bar is raised, though, when we shift over into human relationships. More is required to be a good husband, a good wife, a good parent, a good friend. And we have to admit, we're never perfect in those relations, and are often terrible in them. The bar reaches up to the ceiling when it comes to our relationship with God. All of us come up short in our relationship with Him. We are only in right relationship when we love the same things and we hate the same things as He does. When God's will is our will. When all of who we are is conformed to his perfect plan for us. That we fall short of this is why we are often bad in our human relationships and even why we can be bad dog owners. So, can there be a different kind of human being? 
one who would not merely be a good dog owner or be just okay in human relationships, but one who would have a perfect relationship with God and thus be perfect in every way. Matthew answers this question in verses 31 through 46 of chapter 26. Jesus and his disciples, you'll recall, in the previous verses, had shared the Last Supper together, their Passover supper. Celebrated early because Jesus wasn't going to be alive when the actual Passover feast was going to be occurring. And in verse 30, it said they, they left their feast and went to the Mount of Olives singing hymns. Now as they're going along, it seems Jesus had something to say to them. And something that's a bit strange. In verse 31, he says, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen... I will go ahead of you into Galilee. What Jesus is telling his disciples here is, like all typical human beings, the twelve are going to disappoint him. They're going to abandon Jesus. Which is quite a striking thing, considering they just spent three years with Jesus. And now, they're just going to fall away. They're just going to scatter. It's kind of, I, I think personally for us, it's, it's a good reminder that, you know, if the disciples after all of this can fall away, we are no less susceptible in our own lives of scattering in the face of hardship. Now, when Jesus says that the shepherd will be struck, he's of course referring to his death, the violence that he's going to suffer. But even in the midst of you know, saying something bad's going to happen and you all are going to abandon me, he does give us a little kernel of hope here. A little bit of hope for his disciples. Verse 32 says, But after I have arisen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So even as he's speaking of his death, he's also speaking of his resurrection, and he's also hinting that they are going to be brought back together in Galilee. Now, if you're looking at the text, you'll see that when Jesus says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, it's referring to a prophecy that was given in the Old Testament. And the prophecy that he's referring to is in Zechariah 13, and it's worth a closer look. It's Zechariah 13, verses 7 through 9. There the prophet writes, Awake, sword, against my shepherd, Against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I'll turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God." So again, the same sort of parallel where we have the shepherd being struck and yet there's something good that is to come about. What's especially notable here, I think, is that God says that he will that the shepherd is my shepherd. And he says that the shepherd is a man close to me. Now, the word there for close to me is the Hebrew word amith, which occurs quite frequently in the book of Leviticus uh, and can be otherwise translated as associate, fellow, or neighbor. 
So you're talking about someone who is equal with you. So what God is saying is that this shepherd is his associate. It's someone who shares equality with him. This is the one who's to be struck. Now putting the pieces together, we, we turn to Jesus, and we see what he says about himself in the Gospel of John. John 10, 25-30. We see him bring together this notion of equality and his role as shepherd. In John 10, 25, speaking to the Jews surrounding him in the temple, he says, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. So he's implying his role as shepherd here. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So you see what Jesus does there is he, he, he refers to himself as in this shepherding role. And he speaks of the Father. He says, the Father is greater than all. But then in verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. So the Father is greater than all, and then I and the Father are one. He's asserting his own greatness by pointing out his equality with the Father. Now, as Jesus says here that the disciples will abandon him, they do indeed do that. But it's interesting Jesus has a certain peace even in the midst of acknowledging that they're not going to stick with him. And we see John pick up on this in John 16, 32. He records Jesus as saying, A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. So Judas is going to you know, betray Jesus. Jesus is his own countrymen are going to turn against him. His own disciples are going to run away, scared, abandon him. And yet Jesus is not alone. The Father is going to be with him throughout the duration of this trial, leading to his crucifixion. And I think it's important for us to remember this, that there is no point in which the Father and the Son are divided. There is no point at which the Father abandons the Son. I, and I think this is especially important for us to notice because just the nature of who God is. God is three persons who are one in being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're indivisible. To divide them from one another would tear apart the actual nature of who God is. And so even while all these human beings are, be, are abandoning Jesus, the consolation that Jesus has is that his Father is always with him. Now, we see in verse 33 that Peter leads a protest against Jesus' prediction. You can imagine that, you know, we heard in the Last Supper, all of them were upset about this idea that one of them would betray him. And now Jesus is saying, all of you are going to be, abandon me. Not as, quite as bad as betrayal, but still pretty bad. And so, and so Peter says in verse 33, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. And then in verse 35, all the disciples say, yeah, we're not, we're not going anywhere. But Jesus is insistent. He tells Peter, you're going to disown me three times. You're going to deny me three times. And it's funny that sort of language he uses of disowning, of denying, because we heard earlier in Matthew's Gospel how Jesus says that his disciples must deny themselves to follow him. Matthew 16 he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. 
but whoever loses their life for me will find it. So what Jesus is predicting here is basically a fundamental failure on the part of Peter and the rest of the disciples. They've been called to deny themselves and to follow after Christ. Instead, they're going to deny Jesus, and they're going to scatter. Now, Peter and the rest, and the rest of the disciples are no doubt confident in their resolve to stick with Jesus, but shortly after this exchange, we will already see some signs of weakness. Jesus knows that he will soon be betrayed by Judas and led to the cross. But before all that happens, he feels the need for prayer. And so they go to this place called Gethsemane, which is an olive tree garden. And that word Gethsemane actually means oil press. So this is a place where they probably harvested the olives and then pressed it down to oil. And it's kind of just, it seems kind of like a fitting name given what Jesus is undergoing right now. He's feeling very pressed. <laughs> He's going to the garden of the oil press. So they go to this garden, and Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him. James and John are the sons of Zebedee, they're brothers. And this is kind of. You have the 12, and then you have like, the inner circle within the 12. That's those three. Um, you'll recall in Matthew 17 how Jesus took these three up with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, where they saw Jesus sitting with Moses and Elijah. Now, why does he bring them with him? It appears that he brings them with him because he wants companionship. He wants his friends to be with him in the midst of his trial. And here, we really do see the humanity of Christ completely. It says that he was sorrowful and troubled. In verse 38, Jesus says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. I think it's important for us to really imagine kind of the emotional state of Christ at this time and recognize that all the sorts of emotions that we would share and, and like he has a share in that as well. It's not as though he went to the cross, well, what's next on our itinerary? Oh, I'm going to go to a cross and be crucified. <laughs> he didn't just have kind of like a placid smile about it. No one, er, any, anyone would be troubled, would be very sorrowful at that prospect. And so he tells the disciples to come with him, these three, to keep watch with him. Now what does keep watch mean? Is he trying to say keep watch out for, you know, for Judas and these people are going to arrest him? No. Actually, this call to watch is a call to prayer. And we pick, see this more clearly as we go along, but also as we look to the other gospel accounts. Luke 22, verses 39 through 40, it says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus knows that they need prayer against falling into temptation. But you also think about why is he praying? He's praying against the temptation that's dogging him as well. And we know Christ faced all temptation. He knows what it's like to be in our shoes. So what would you be tempted to do if you were in this position? You'd be like, I'm getting out of town. I'm running away. So Jesus' solution to temptation is prayer. How many of us do that when we actually face temptation face-to-face? -face? Go immediately to prayer. Sometimes we do it beforehand, like, okay, you know, I don't want to fall into temptation. But when, it, when you're staring at face-to-face, -face, do you resort to prayer? That's what we need to do. That's the example that Christ has set for us. And the other thing, too, is we, we especially need to do that when we are in the highs and lows of 
of the human experience. Jesus is grieving. He's so sorrowful. And as we'll see later, it seems that the disciples have picked up on this as well. And so when you're in a place of immense grief, or let's say you're in a place of immense anger, even if it's just anger, or any kind of immense emotion, when we are in those states of being, we are very susceptible to temptation. Jesus' prescription is turn to prayer. Go to the Father. Pray that you might not fall into temptation. Now, when Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, some of the commentators suggest that he's making an allusion to Psalms 42 and 43. And if you look at them, it seems like a pretty fitting match for what is probably going on in Jesus' mind at this point. So I wanted to read it in full. I'm not going to offer you know, a thorough analysis of it, but I just want us to really sit in these Psalms and put ourselves kind of in the frame of mind that Jesus was in at this time. So Psalm 42. This is for the director of music, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers are swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. It's easy to see how these psalms would have come to mind to Christ for the trial that he's about to endure. He, know he, he knows he has reason for hope. The resurrection is no surprise to him. We've just heard how he's telling his disciples, I will rise again. I will see you. And yet even with that hope, it is not, it is not a good experience to experience the oppression of your enemies. To go through a trial in which you feel like you're forgotten by God, even as Jesus knows that he's not forgotten by God. But this is the tension of the human experience. And so when we think about our own walk in following after Christ, I think it's important for us to remember that it's possible to be distressed, to be sorrowful, and yet maintain faith in God. To be a Christian doesn't mean that you're like, oh, this is all fine. Kind of, I don't know if you've ever seen that meme where the guy's like sitting, the dog sitting in the chair and everything's on fire, and he's like, this is fine. Um, we're not expected to act like that. When things are bad, it's appropriate for us to respond in a way like, this is bad. But with that response of, of sorrow and anguish, we also put our faith and trust in God. And that's what Jesus is doing here. 
And he's driven to do this despite the anguish and everything that's coming because he knows it's something that must be done. And some of us may have been in experiences like this and conceivably all of us could be put in a position like this. So like say for instance, your son or daughter or your mother or father needed a kidney to be donated in order to survive. Now, I don't know about you, but I really wouldn't want to have to do that. I mean, all of us would prefer to keep both of our kidneys, and yet, you would likely have the will to do it because you love your, your children, you love your parents. You do it because it will help. And this is the driving force behind what Jesus is willing to do here. So we hear him say in verse 39, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Here we see Jesus really bear out his own teaching. Remember the way that he taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6. In the Lord's Prayer, he says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, the divine will, which Jesus is sharing in because he's fully divine, it's his will as well. The divine will is that he is to die on a cross. And he's actually living that out. Now, that's exactly what this cup represents. It represents Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus, it represents Jesus entering into the human curse and receiving its, its full terribleness, its full judgment, undeservedly, because he's innocent. He's perfect. Now, that's something that he'd prefer to avoid, but again, the flashing neon lights here is, yet not as I will, but as you will. What Matthew is doing here is he's drawing our attention to the will of Christ. That he shares his will is in perfect union with the will of the Father. The, New the rest of the New Testament draws attention to this in some significant places in explaining how Jesus saves us, looking to his will, his obedience. In Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 10, the writer of Hebrews says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petition with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. So he's referring to Gethsemane here. And then it says, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Notice how the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus' prayer was answered, actually. He was actually, even while he did have to suffer the cross and he did have to die, God did not allow him to remain dead, but he was actually delivered from death. He was heard because of his reverent submission. Thy will be done. It's interesting here because it says that he learned obedience from what he suffered. And we think about, well, why does Jesus have to learn anything? Is that suggesting that he's not fully God if he has something to learn? No. What's referring to is this human nature that he's taken on, that he's fully human. He's living that out. And we, and we see this made perfectly clear in Paul's letter to the Philippians, in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, where we have both Christ's divinity and humidity in full view. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who... Being in very nature God, so it's tough to skate around that, like that's pretty clear, Jesus is God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So God became man and and becoming fully man, 
the Son is doing what all of us were called and created to do, which was to live in obedience to God. And Jesus does it even unto the point of death. And this is what really truly sets Jesus apart from us. Simply put, as it's stated in John 6.38 by Jesus, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. That's the difference. And if you can kind of pick up on a, a, a striking parallel here between you have the Garden of Eden and now you have the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve defied God's will. He said, eat of all the trees except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because if you eat of it, you're going to die. So don't do that. And it's interesting how it's flipped entirely with Jesus. He's in this garden. He's called to, to take this cup and die. See how the things have been reversed. Adam and Eve, it was much easy, easier. All they had to do was just follow God's commands, flourish and enjoy everything that they, they received from him. And Jesus, he's called to something much more difficult. Unlike them, he did not sin, and yet he's called to take their punishment. And he does that. He's obedient where they were disobedient. And of course, we follow the pattern of Adam and Eve down through the ages. He's obedient where we have been disobedient. And Paul picks this out as the fulcrum, you know, the point that, on which everything turns. This is the fulcrum of our salvation in Romans 5.19. He says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Everything turns on the obedience of Christ. That's what makes the difference. Even as Jesus is demonstrating that he is the different man, we see in the next set of verses that the disciples are still living in the same old ways of Adam. After praying for a little while, Jesus goes back to check in on his three disciples and uh, he finds them asleep. And he pointedly goes to Peter, the guy who said wouldn't deny him, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? It's like, you said you're not going to deny me, and yet you couldn't even just do this. Now, as we were saying before, the reason why he's calling them to pray is so that they would not fall into temptation. He knows that they are going to fall, and yet he's showing them what they need to do in order to avoid that, and yet they're failing to do that. And again, this harkens back to the Lord's Prayer, which he taught them, and how they were supposed to pray, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Why must they pray? He says in verse 41, it's because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, we did talk about Jesus' sorrow, and I alluded to this, but it's interesting because... In Luke 22, it also suggests that the disciples fell asleep because they, too, were sorrowful. That they were really picking up on that something bad was going to happen to Jesus soon. In Luke 22, 45, it says, When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. So it wasn't just like they were just like, yeah, I want to take us as soon as why is Jesus taking so long? It's just like they were so grieved to the point that they're just exhausted from it. And so they fell asleep. And yet they still, Jesus said, you've got to be praying. And so Jesus leaves them and he, he goes back to where he was praying. He offers another prayer. But this time, it's a bit different. See in verse 42. It says, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, 
May your will be done. Now, we have to pay really close attention to the words here because otherwise it's very easy for us just to kind of glaze over them. Before, Jesus was praying that the cup would be taken away in the sense that, in other words, that Jesus would not need to drink it, that he would not need to die. But now we see a shift here where Jesus is recognizing that the cup can't be taken away unless he drinks it. Now, you're probably like, what? Because that's a little bit confusing, because how can that be? How could the cup be taken away if he drinks it? Because you think that if he drinks the cup, that would mean the cup is not being taken away. So what is Jesus talking about here? What he's talking about here is is not his share in the cup, but our share. Remember we said that the cup represents death. It represents God's judgment upon mankind. If he doesn't fall under the divine judgment, we will remain under the divine judgment. The cup will not pass away. This cup was ours. This judgment was ours. But Jesus drank of it, even though it didn't properly belong to him. And we see this clearly stated, prophesied, hundreds of years before in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5, speaking of this suffering Messiah who was to come. It says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. So what the prophet Isaiah is saying here is that people are going to see this Messiah and think that he's been cursed by God. That God's punishing him as such, as, as a person. But what he's suffering is not his punishment, but our own. He doesn't deserve it, and yet he's receiving it. He suffers not for his sins, but ours. It's critically important for us to recognize this. And so I've kind of, de- uh, to help you kind of maybe wrap your mind around this, I, I've created a, a couple of illustrations. If you can imagine this bullet is God's judgment, and of course, this is the world. The world is under God's judgment. And in fact, we've already felt the impact because we die, there's war, there's disease, there's all kinds of bad things. We're, we're all under judgment. What Jesus does is he comes and stands in the line of, of fire. The bolt's for us, but he crosses right in front of it. And this isn't accidental as like almost, you know, Jesus is accidentally you know, tripped into the line of fire. We know that he's not taken to the cross against his own will, but that he goes so willingly. And he goes willingly because he, he knows that he can take the hit. For normal human beings, when we die, that's it. Because that's what we had coming to us. You'll die for your sins. Jesus' death is different because his share in our condemnation is the precise point of his own exoneration. He doesn't deserve this, and yet he goes to it. He doesn't fold. He's perfectly obedient unto death. And it's important he proves that because until he does that, it's an open question. We know that he hadn't sinned up to this point. But so long as someone lives, there's always the opportunity, well, maybe he'll fail now. Maybe he'll fail now. The cross is the punctuation mark of a perfect life of obedience. When we go again to the book of Hebrews, we see how Christ's death and obedience are just intricately tied together. The writer says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, 
Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So all the old sacrifices that God had prescribed ultimately were meaningless in and of themselves. Because what they're really pointing to was what Jesus manifests. That like Jesus, we would pray, Thy will be done. Your will be done. And of course, none of us have done that, but Jesus does so here perfectly through the sacrifice of His body for our sakes. When we look to John's Gospel, we see how Jesus actually characterizes everything that's about to play out as the point of His being glorified and the Father being glorified. In John 17, 1, this is parallel to everything that's happening here. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Now, a word like glorify, like what does that mean? Well, Jesus actually tells us what it actually means for Jesus to be glorified through all of this, for God to be glorified through all this. You go back five chapters earlier, to John 12, verses 23 through 27, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So, again, referring to his death, and the resurrection will follow. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. So we have a little bit of a, you know, a condensed version here in verse 27 of everything that Jesus has been praying here. He's distressed. But he's like, am I going to walk away from this? No. Because this is the very reason for which I came. Jesus recognizes that the cup can't pass away unless he drinks it. He recognizes that he needs to die in order to bring life to the world. Like the seed that dies. And from that comes many more seeds. He says, it's for this very reason I came to this hour. Now, if you've got a good memory, you'll remember that um, Jesus tells James and John in Matthew 20 when they send their mother um, to Jesus to ask, hey, can we sit on your right and your left to kind of have prime spots in the kingdom of God? You'll remember that Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And then they respond, we can't. Jesus says to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. I, I, I bring that verse up because I think it, it demands some clarification of what Jesus is, is talking about here. And even understanding his own participation in the cup. When Jesus partakes of the cup, he's not saying that all suffering is removed away immediately. Because he says James and John are going to suffer that. You and I and many others are going to suffer in this world. But what Jesus accomplishes by his death and resurrection is an ultimate removal of that cup. So that death passes away. 
and eternal life comes and stays. The other thing, of course, is that God does not have wrath towards James and John, even if his plans might entail that they suffer and die for the faith. And so likewise, if, if the Father doesn't have wrath towards them, certainly the Father does not have wrath towards the Son. Because again, as we were talking about earlier, there is no division in the Trinity. But God does will that Jesus suffer the curse and judgment of this world to turn away God's wrath. It's a fine distinction to make, but it's a very important one. And so in the same way, well, differently, our suffering doesn't turn away God's wrath because that's been accomplished once and for all through Jesus because that's already been done. We're not perfect as it is. But like Jesus, we can and do suffer the curse upon this world as we follow him. I've got another illustration of, of that. You see, as we've been joined to Jesus... We are invited into his suffering. We go where he goes. And so the, the Apostle Paul can say in Colossians 1.24, and I use the New Living Translation here because it's a little bit easier to understand. He says, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. Isn't that interesting? We can be joined to the sufferings of Christ. And it's suffering for a purpose, suffering for the church. When we come to Christ, we're not excused from suffering. We follow Jesus into the line of fire. We walk into the middle of the curse. We stare evil in the face. We surround ourselves with sinners. Jesus finishes his prayer once again, asserting his will take this cup, and he returns again and finds his disciples sleeping. And this time he doesn't bother to wake them up. And so he prays a third time the same thing. Now, that's kind of an interesting parallel here. You know, we, we began earlier, he's telling Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And now we see here three times Jesus being obedient in prayer. These are the sort of details that, that Matthew is probably wanting us to pick up on here. Because he's not telling us everything absolutely that occurred here. But he's, the things that he's telling us, he wants us to pick up on. So, after he prays, he wakes them up and he says, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And as we'll see, he's, he's telling them not to get up so they can run away, but so that they will actually go to his betrayer. After prayer, Jesus is ready to meet his, his betrayer. He's, he's ready to meet Judas face to face. And Jesus can do this because he is the different man. He is the shepherd God can call his equal, his associate. Because he is the Son of God who became fully human. Unlike Adam, he is obedient. He is faithful even as he knows God will strike him down. He falls under the human curse, receiving the divine punishment for our sins, not his own. Our punishment is taken away. God's judgment and wrath is turned away because he did this willingly. Because he prayed, yet not as I will, but as you will. His punishment, talking about being crucified and all of that, being whipped, it was common in many ways. It was our punishment after all. The gruesome nature of his death is like many human deaths. Humans die in all kinds of terrible ways. What was radically different was the man. He was perfectly innocent. More than this, he was perfectly righteous. This man, who was also God, 
willingly surrendered his life, making himself a perfect sacrifice, a perfect gift to God. It's a gift that no one can match. His life is enough to ransom our lives. His obedience is enough to make amends for our rebellion. Jesus brings forth a new world by his death. Like a seed that falls to the ground and rises to give life to many. Why? So that we too may be different. So that we too would pray, yet not as I will, but as you will. Let's pray. Dear Father, we give you thanks and praise that we've been saved because your Son was the different man. That he came to do your will. That you and he shared in perfect unity with the Holy Spirit, Father. So that Jesus was willing to be obedient even unto the point of death. Father, we thank you that by his obedience we can be forgiven of our disobedience. And what's more, Father, that through Jesus Christ we can become like him. That through his death we can participate in the new life that he brings. So that we would become the men and women and children who pray, not as I will, but as you will. Father, we pray that that would become our prayer. That we would pray this prayer in the face of all kinds of temptations, Father. Help us to run to prayer, to keep watch, to be vigilant in our sorrow and our anger and all the emotions in life, Father. Help us to follow after the example of Christ. And Father, we thank you that when we stumble and fall, when we scatter like the disciples, that Christ is yet enough for us. We give you praise in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island just around the bend from Sedgwick Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.